What priorities do you look for in the life of the church? If you're a member here, when you first came to Arlington Baptist Church, what were you looking for when you came to ABC? What priorities were you hoping for, looking to discover? Or maybe if you're, if you're visiting with us this morning from another church family, when you first went to your church, what were you looking for in a church when you gathered with those saints? And if you're visiting here with us this morning, maybe you're, you're, you're new to attending church. When you turned up here, what were you interested to find? What were you hoping would be present? What priorities were you hoping would emerge? And here's the real question. What will your church prioritize when the pressure is on? Uh, pressure has an interesting way of revealing our bread, bedrock priorities, doesn't it? Uh, this was true for the first church in Jerusalem. They were facing pressures from without and from within. Uh, they were facing hostility from the Jewish religious leaders as they were proclaiming the gospel. And people were being imprisoned and jailed. And they were facing pressures from within. A couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira were hypocrites and they lied, or tried to lie to the Holy Spirit. And the Lord struck them down dead. These pressures were emerging in the life of the church. And the Lord was sustaining the church in Jerusalem. And yet, as we come to the text that we're looking at together this morning, we see a new pressure Emerge Some widows, some dear sisters in the Lord, in the church in Jerusalem, were being overlooked in the distribution of the bread. And not only that, one group within the church was raising a complaint against another group in the church. How would the church respond? Would the same priorities of the preaching of God's word and prayer and caring for one another re-emerge as bedrock priorities? How would the apostles Reorganize the life of the church so that these vital priorities are not sidelined, but strengthened. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about together from God's Word. And as we open God's Word together this morning, it's my prayer that the priorities that the first church in Jerusalem had, they would be the priorities of our church family. And even when the pressure is on. And we want to more closely participate in the continuing ministry of the risen Lord Jesus, known in word and in deed that we see taking place here. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles and turn in them to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at just verses 1 to 7 this morning. I had intended to take up the whole chapter, but I decided after much writing and thinking that we needed to move down just to the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think you can find the passage on page 914. As you may know, uh, the book of Acts, it was written by Luke. He's chronicling the continuing ministry of the risen Lord Jesus through his apostles. That's what's taking place. Jesus told his disciples that they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. So they're being commissioned to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the program of the book of Acts. It's found there in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. That's the trail that the book of Acts is following. And we've been watching the good news of Jesus expand in Jerusalem through the witness of the apostles. And that's what we're going to continue to see today. In these first seven verses, we're looking at three things in particular. So these three points, they're going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Three headings that you're taking notes. First, the problem facing the church. Second, the proposal to the church. And third, the prosperity of the church. This is what we're going to think about together this morning from God's Word. Follow along as I read Acts chapter 6, beginning there in verse 1. I'll read verses 1 to 7. 
and see if you can spot the problem facing the church. It's really going to emerge there in verse 1, but I want to read the whole so we have a sense of the whole. Follow along now as I read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, one of the things that I appreciate about the Bible is that it is honest. It reminds us that God's people have faults and flaws, and they overlook things, they neglect things. And that's what we see taking place here. This is going to be true for any church, this side of glory. It was true for the first church in Jerusalem. It's true for the church here in Arlington, Virginia. And it's going to be true until the Lord Jesus calls us all home. There will be errors and things overlooked and things neglected. In the church of the living God. We have faults and flaws that need to be healed and addressed. And so Luke reminds us that the church growing in number is also growing in needs. And this growing conflict is emerging too. In the latter half of verse 1 we're told that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So there's this potential for division emerging in the life of the church. And this, is, this complaint is more than just a bad review on Yelp or Google. This is murmuring. This is grumbling taking place among God's people. And we can't forget the murmuring that took place back in the wilderness among the people of Israel. Right? When they murmured in the presence of Moses and Aaron. Murmuring is a temptation. Grumbling is a temptation in every generation. And murmuring moves. It never sits still. But... There is such a thing as a righteous complaint. And maybe we have something of that here. I mean, unlike so many disputes in the life of the church these days, this dispute in Acts 6 is deadly. Right? Widows who are close to the heart of God in the Old Testament are being neglected in the daily distribution. The, the implication is these sisters in Christ were being neglected and overlooked in the daily distribution of food. These sisters were poor, and the church in Jerusalem had pledged to take up and care for the needs of their flock. But these sisters were somehow being overlooked, and they're potentially going hungry. And the language implies that this has been happening for some time. And this is a serious problem. James chapter 1, verse 27 tells us that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. A brother in the Lord pointed out to me uh, earlier this week that the church in Jerusalem is near to failing at pure and undefiled religion in God's sight. While the needs of the Hebrew widows were being met, the needs of the Hellenistic widows were being neglected. We need to understand who these 
two groups are that the Hebrew widows were those Jewish widows who likely spoke Aramaic as their primary language. They probably lived and grew up in and around the Palestinian area. The Hellenistic widows, on the other hand, were those Jewish widows, so also of Jewish ethnic descent, were those who likely spoke Greek as their primary language. And you probably even have a footnote there in your Bibles that notes something to that effect. In the Pew Bibles, for example, I think there's a footnote that says, uh, that clarifies that the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. But what's important to recognize is that both groups of widows were of Jewish descent, but they they simply had different first languages, and they likely had some uh, cultural differences among them as well. Uh, The Hellenistic Jews were those who had returned to Jerusalem from being scattered across the the known world. They probably uh, brought back with them some of the Greek and Hellenistic culture that they had absorbed from those places that they had previously lived. But the enunciated difference, really, between these two groups was that was one of primary or first language. And it's very possible some of these cultural differences were uh, playing into this as well, but that's not clearly disclosed. We don't really know what was the root cause of the difference in treatment between the Hellenistic widows or the Hebrew widows. We simply know that these Hellenistic widows were being overlooked and neglected. These dear sisters didn't even rise to their own defense. I don't know if you noticed that there in the text. It appears that some of the Hellenistic brothers in the Lord took this problem to the apostles. I so appreciate that these brothers in the Lord didn't allow the grumbling or the neglect to continue. But instead they got up, they got going, and they sought a godly resolution. Brothers and sisters, we ought to think about this text for our own life as a church family. What about the widows or widowers or homebound members in our congregation? Are we overlooking them in some way? How many of us know the widows or widowers or the homebound members of our congregation? How many of us know their needs? How many of us are visiting them in their distress? What what are their prayer requests? What, what What are they constantly bringing before the Lord? And if you're a widow or a widower here in our congregation, I I pray that you do not feel overlooked. I hope that you do not feel overlooked. But if you do, you should talk to us about being overlooked and neglected. Tell us. Uh, what your concerns are, what needs you have. We want to to care for you. Share with us your needs. And I'm guessing that one of your your primary needs is just simple companionship. You want to be near fellow believers, to read scripture, to, to pray with them, to grow in friendship. Brothers and sisters, let us visit and care for the widows and widowers and the homebound members of our congregation. And if they're comfortable, I would encourage you, if you have children, take them along with you. In my experience, visits to homebound members are enriched by the presence of children. Indeed, even in those visits, children learn that we ought to move about our older saints with caution and care. That we want to so honor them and treasure them that we're working hard not to run them over. So carve out time to serve brothers and sisters in our church family, our older saints, in this way. And and just as it's possible, kind of a, a, a attendant application of this as well. Just as it's possible that we're also over, overlooking our senior saints, it's possible that we may be overlooking and neglecting some of our single saints as well. We are a, a church that rightly esteems marriage and family, and we rejoice that the Lord has blessed our church family with so many children. And this can sometimes mean that our single brothers and sisters feel neglected and overlooked. Our, our single brothers and sisters can also struggle with loneliness and solitude. The same kind of loneliness and solitude that some of our senior saints may struggle with. 
And just as we ought to make a special effort to extend love and fellowship to the widows and the widowers and the homebound members of our congregation, so it would bless our single brothers and sisters if we make sure that they're not overlooked either. This is all a part of the lifestyle, the Christian lifestyle that's really not just concerned with self, but looking to serve others, just as the Lord Jesus did when he came to look for our salvation and serve us and care for us. Now, as you go about visiting older saints, or even single saints, other members of the congregation, if you are discovering that they have physical or material or financial needs, then please don't hesitate to share that news, that information with the elders. We have a benevolence fund here at our church And our aim is to use that fund to meet the needs of saints in our congregation. We want to deploy those resources for the blessing of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Sometimes uh, members are hesitant to share problems that they see with the elders. They're afraid of kind of piling on to the plate of elders. But brothers and sisters, this is what we're here for. We, We can't allow members to go overlook. So if you if you discover this do come and speak with us and share this with us. We're going to need to learn to delegate like the apostles did here, but we need to make sure that we are pursuing these uh, forms of care for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. You know, the the elders were fallible men, were fallen, were flawed. It's possible that we're overlooking good and godly things. So we need your help in seeing and meeting all the needs of all the saints. We, We might by accident be neglecting some. So, so bring that to our attention. And then uh, we should aim to come up with a proposal that pleases the whole congregation, just as the apostles did, which is quite remarkable, isn't it? Well, like the complaint that came to Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, this complaint concerning the overlooked widows comes to the apostles. That's who the, the twelve are in our text. These apostles, the twelve, they were those who were divinely commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus to be his witnesses to tell that he's been raised from the dead in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this dispute, just like every dispute in any church, it has the power to divide, to distract, and to derail a church from her primary mission and ministry. That's the tension that's existing here in this text. So how would this problem and this pressure be resolved? Well, let's turn now and look at the apostles' proposal to the church. This is our second point, the proposal to the church. Follow along now as I read Acts chapter 6, verses 2 to 4. Acts chapter 6, verses 2 to 4. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. If I could summarize the apostles' proposal here, what we're seeing is they're saying, we're going to remain committed to shepherding. We're going to remain committed to shepherding, especially through the preaching and teaching of God's word and prayer. And we're we're calling you as a congregation to recognize seven men for service, service at the tables. You see that there in the text? That's their proposal. We, we could say that their priorities then that are emerging is proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ in their ministry as the apostles and portraying the Lord Jesus Christ in service. That's what's taking place here. And the first arm of this proposal is that the apostles will remain steadfastly 
focused upon serving the congregation through the ministry of the word and through prayer. Notice that after they had summoned the whole of the full number of disciples in Jerusalem, they say that it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And that phrase, it is not right, it communicates that giving up the preaching of God's word would be unacceptable to the apostles. They, they can't neglect the preaching of God's word in order to attend to the neglected widows. So an alternate solution has to be found. And it seems as though the apostles up to this point had been the ones in the church who were primarily responsible for making sure that the resources of the church were being distributed. If you look back to Acts chapter 4, verse 35, you'll see that gifts were being brought to the, to the apostles and being laid at their feet. And so what's probably taking place is they're being overwhelmed by the needs of, of the church, just like Moses was being overwhelmed uh, in, in the Old Testament with the, the needs of the people of Israel. And they recognize that they need help. But notice and note carefully that they're unwilling to give up their primary calling. As we see in, from, from verses 3 and following, the, the second arm of the proposal emerges. But we need to stop and reflect on the apostles' steadfast commitment to serving the congregation through shepherding, especially in the tasks of preaching and praying. For them, this ministry cannot be neglected. It can't be reduced Either. Look, look at the end of verse 4 again. You see their commitment. The apostles say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So in, in this instance, to do one thing is, is not to do another. That doesn't mean that other thing isn't important. It obviously is. They're going to come up with a, a solution for that. But they recognize that their primary calling will be to preach and teach God's word and to pray for God's people. And in ministry, there has to be this kind of real determination and commitment to the most important things. Otherwise, your energy and your efforts are going to be overtaken with very good and other important things. So what we're seeing here emerge in Acts 6 is something of a prototype of what will take place in the life of the New Testament church. The apostles' main duties are spoken of in terms that we later apply to the office of elders. So we're seeing something of, of proto-elder here, kind of the seed form of that. And the main duties of the seven men there in verse 3 are spoken of in terms that will be later applied to the office of deacon. We, we don't quite have those offices yet, but this is kind of the seed form of this beginning to emerge in the life of the church. We see proto-elders and proto-deacons, as it were. Now, to be clear, no pastor alive today is an apostle like the twelve were in the book of Acts. I am not an apostle. The elders of ABC, we are not apostles. That was a unique office for a unique period of time. Apostles were those men who were directly called and commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus. And by directly, I mean like in their presence, calling them to follow him and serve him in this way. So every pastor today is not an apostle, but every pastor today must have the same commitment that the apostles had. They must give primacy to preaching and prayer. They must devote themselves to these callings. Sometimes they must choose to say no to some very good and important things. I have one friend who stated this rather starkly when he was candidating uh, as to, be, to be senior pastor of this particular church family. He, he, he told the pulpit committee uh, this, and I'm quoting him now, I am committed to every ministry in this church failing so long as it depends upon me except for the faithful preaching of God's word. Now, you might think that that would be the death knell to his prospects to being called as a senior pastor of that congregation. But the funny thing is that they hired him. 
And he has conducted that kind of ministry in his church family where he prioritized preaching and prayer. And God has been pleased to bless it. Why should this ministry be prioritized? Well, the scriptures teach us that faith comes through hearing the word of Jesus Christ proclaimed. That's what Paul says in Romans 10, 17. So if sinners are to be saved, then Jesus must be preached. And this has several implications and applications for us and our life together as a church. Christian, what does this mean for you? Here's one implication. If God has chosen to work through his word and through the preaching of his word, and he has, as Paul says in Romans 10, 17, then we ought to come to his word with eager expectation that he's going to work in and through it. So so let me encourage you to prepare for the preaching of God's word week in and week out. Read it in advance. I know that one brother in this congregation, I think, uh, he, has, he reads the text of, of, that's going to be preached on in advance, and he, and he reads it with his children, and they come up with an outline for what, what might be the outline of the sermon. He might even ask the question of, where is the preacher going to preach the gospel from this text? Where is he going to offer Jesus Christ from the text? He's giving some thought. He's preparing for the preaching of the word because he esteems it and sees it as so important. I, I would encourage you to do something like that. You don't have to prepare in the same way. But you, do, you should prepare in some way. For years, uh, a brother uh, in the church would come up to me after the sermon and thank me for putting in my one hour of work a week. Uh, and he, he, he was joking, of course, and, and because he knew that I spent somewhere between 16 and 24 hours a week just working on the sermon and preparing the sermon alone. And as a congregation, you have been kind to allow me to free me up for that kind of labor and study. And it's clear to me that you value that kind of of work and ministry over these last 12 years. It's been my privilege to serve in this way. So if I'm working hard to preach, you should be working hard to listen. So prepare for the Lord's Day. Uh, Read it with your family. Read it with other brothers and sisters in this congregation that you get together with throughout the week. When you have somebody over your home or you go out to coffee, if you don't have something you're regularly reading through, just read the passage of Scripture that's going to be preached on a week in advance. We publish that through our church's newsletter. So you should know what's what's coming up. So get involved with that. And children, let me encourage you to get involved with this as well. If, If by Saturday afternoon comes, Saturday lunchtime comes, and your parents haven't read to you the text of Scripture that's going to be preached on uh, this coming Sunday, tug on their arm and ask them, hey, read me the passage of Scripture. Can we sit down and read this together? That would be a great way for you to prepare and to help your parents prepare for the preaching of God's Word. But, but notice here, there's another aspect of ministry that the apostles say that they need to devote themselves to as well. Do you see it? It's prayer. Now, if you know your own heart and your own spiritual walk with the Lord you know that you need other people praying for you. It is a good thing for your pastors to be devoted to praying for you, to sustaining you in prayer. It's significant that the apostles tell the church that they need to give themselves to praying and to preaching. Because in fact, preaching will probably be in vain unless we are praying for the Spirit's work and move and asking and begging God to do that. So the elders of ABC, we must be working hard in praying for the flock, as well as preaching and teaching the flock. And if the elders should prioritize preaching and praying, then there are some more implications and applications for you as Christians in this congregation. Are you ready to help offload some administrative tasks and labors in this church family? Are you ready to take some of these things off the elders' hands? Do you so value their ministry of the word and prayer that you're willing to do this? Do you... 
Do you see elders care for you and your soul as significant or small? Do you want your elders spending hours praying for you, for the church family, and for working on the word to serve it up to you? For the sake of your soul, I think you're going to need to value that kind of ministry going forward. And here's the truth, at least I need to confess. I'm not great at delegating. It's hard for me to give things up. I've got trust and control issues. But I am so grateful for those of you who know that I have difficulty delegating that you lovingly pry things out of my hands and take them off my plates because you serve me and you serve your other brothers and sisters in the Lord as well. So, so many of you handle bulletins and the newsletter and mailing the newsletter out with those, to those without email, printing and assembling our members' meeting packets, uploading sermon audio and handling other content on the website, scheduling the, the lawn care, managing the supplies for the janitorial closet, filling the piano humidifier weekly, cleaning up uh, the coffee and tea after our time of fellowship, and so many other administrative tasks. Many of you jump into serving, and that helps free elders up for praying and preaching and teaching. Thank you for the ways in which you sacrificially serve God's people and your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. These are wonderful things. You're a faithful congregation. And keep at it. Keep serving. I think you model and imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is really what we want to think about next. If we thought about the proclamation of Jesus in the apostles' ministry. We want to think about the portrayal of Jesus here in these seven men. This is the, the second arm. So while the apostles are going to continue shepherding in the ministry of word and prayer. These seven men are going to be addressing the needs of these saints. And again, I, I think what we're seeing here is a seed form of really elder-led congregationalism. You have the apostles coming forward, calling the whole congregation together and saying, you need to pick out from among you seven who are going to serve under our authority and care. Many years ago, we, um, we practiced the issue, and you see there in the text, right, that the apostles, they also lay their hands on them and pray for them. A number of years ago, uh, we practiced this, this uh, laying our hands on and praying for deacons in the life of our church. And I think, just given this text, we should probably get back to that pattern. So the next time we see in a deacon into the congregation, probably in a Sunday morning service, we should lay hands on that brother and, and pray for him. But there are, are two things that I want us to note, especially carefully, about these seven servants. And one is they were oriented to a particular task. They were oriented to a particular task. And the second is that they were marked by particular traits. So let's think about the task here for a minute. We know that they're dedicated, first and foremost, to seeing to it that the needs of all the widows are met. They were going to serve at tables. And underneath that word serve, in verse 2 of our English translations, is basically the word for deacon in the Greek. This is why I said a few minutes ago, we're looking at kind of proto-deacons and proto-elders, prototype of this office, which is going to be clarified and codified later in 1 Timothy 3. So while preaching is rightly given primacy and ought to be highly esteemed, this service, it too should be highly esteemed. It should be held in high regard because serving portrays the Savior. Think about it. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45? Jesus said this, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Moreover, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus specifically asks His disciples this question. In Luke chapter 22, verse 27, Jesus says, For who is the greater? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not, it, it is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. So you see, those who follow in Jesus' way, they're those who serve. 
And of course, we can't forget the picture of service that Jesus gave in John 13. Remember when Jesus took the form of a servant and He washed His disciples' feet? Jesus, of course, would go from the service of washing their feet to offering the great sacrifice of service and laying His life down on the cross. The way of Christ, Christian, is the way of service. The way of Christ's people is the way of service. These seven men are being commissioned to share in a ministry that portrays Jesus. That's an immense privilege. That's something that we all as Christians should have a share in. We should all be involved in serving our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And one of the things that encourages me about this congregation is just how you, how you serve. So this past week, I, I spent time just thinking through the directory and giving praise and thanks to God for how so many of you serve faithfully among our body. As I said, these seven servants, they're given, they're set aside to serve in a particular way. They're set aside for a specific task of waiting on tables. And our deacons in the life of our church are set aside that way too. So we, we have a deacon of child care who's going to make sure that there are people staffed in the nursery. They've gone through a background check and, and so many more things associated with that. We've got a deacon of service. We've nominated a man for serving as a deacon of, of service. And he'll make sure that there are bulletins being passed out, that communion and ordinance supplies are available, the doors are locked so you can get in, uh, scheduling people for all these kinds of things. Um, we, we need a deacon of hospitality, someone who could coordinate practical love to, to visitors. It'd be great if they would make sure that anyone who attends the, the membership course would be invited over to someone's home within a couple of weeks. Or that they would set an example for greeting visitors on Sunday morning and having visitors even over to their, their own home. We could, we could use this help in facilitating meals after or before members' meetings. Just generally hospitable here in the church family. And, and looking at Acts 6, and especially just thinking about widows, it seems to me that we, we probably need a deacon of member care who, who can help uh, in the task of looking after widows and widowers and, and homebound members. Maybe they could provide or arrange and facilitate for providing rides to, uh, to and from church, to, to doctor's appointments, to assistance with yard work at their homes or other practical ministry that would serve the senior saints of ABC well. Maybe a deacon of member care could coordinate meals for moms who've just had uh, babies in our congregation or, or meals for members who are sick or at other appropriate times. Maybe we could use a, a, deacon, a deacon of member care in our congregation. And, and just as the apostles looked to the church in Jerusalem for help in finding these servants, so the elders of this congregation, we want to look to you. Some of you, in thinking about these needs for hospitality, have already mentioned a name or two to me. Thank you for that. We, if, if you think there are men and women in our, our church family who could serve in these practical ways, talk to the elders about that. If you see them having godly character and ability to serve, Talk to us about that. That would help us in encouraging the congregation to recognize deacons in our midst. But as I mentioned, they need to have godly character. You see, there are traits here. Not only set aside to a specific task, but there are traits in, in verse 3. You see that phrase, pick out from among you? That's not a throwaway line from the apostles. These brothers must be Christians, and they must be members of that church in Jerusalem. Do you see how church membership, I think, is already on the horizon here? There is an identifiable set of believers from whom these servants must be drawn. There's already a line drawn around the congregation, distinguishing them from the world around them. So we see that one requirement is these seven men be Christians and be from the church in Jerusalem. Uh, another requirement is that the apostles uh, gives this task of waiting tables be handed over to seven men. Now when we come to 1 Timothy 3, 
We're going to see Paul is going to include women in the office of deacon. But here in Acts 6, the apostles call men to serve these tables in the church in Jerusalem. We also see that these men must be of good repute. That means they're going to need to have a good reputation. Not only in the church body, but even in wider society. They're going to need to be trustworthy men. Men of integrity. They're probably going to be handling financial resources in the life of the church. So, so they cannot be greedy for ill-gotten gain. Right? They, they, they can't be tempted by money. They need to be content with what God has given them in this life. I mean, men who are filled with integrity and have a good reputation. And they must be full of the Spirit. Now, this means something more than being a Christian with a pulse, right? Um, every Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how we've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit has come into our hearts, awakened us to the Lord Jesus Christ, and given us the gift of faith. Now, what the apostles are likely thinking about here is a Christian who is growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're a Christian that's growing and bearing the fruit of their spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. The apostles, they, they want the church in Jerusalem to be looking for growing and godly men. But they also want a brother who is full of wisdom. Don't you appreciate this? Common sense is sadly too often rare. But godly common sense is even more rare. Right? They're looking for men who can take the principles of the scriptures and apply them to life in the church. The, the circumstances they're facing, they're, they're working through biblical categories of discernment and understanding and meeting the needs of of the saints. What, what, a, what a great qualification and, and trait here they're looking for. And then there's another qualification or trait, really, um, that maybe you overlooked. I don't know if you, you noticed those words, that phrase, whom we will appoint to this duty. You see that? I, I think that this is a trait of humility because these men are going to have to work under the direction, under the authority of the apostles. The apostles will be giving the direction and plan for these brothers to be executing. And deacons today need the same humble spirit of one who is eager to follow the lead of those in authority over them. These are the, the tried and true traits the apostles want to see emerge in these men that the church in Jerusalem appoints for service. Brothers and sisters, let's think about our own lives for a minute and service in our own lives. While our God might not call each one of us to serving formally in the office of deacon, we should aspire to be servants in imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, in John chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus essentially ties following him to serving. So we all at least need to be asking, how can I be one who aspires to serve? Uh, for, for one, we should all be praying for and pressing into the traits that the apostles lay out for us here in verse 3. We should be members of local churches, which is where Christ's people are served. And service to Christ's people primarily takes place. We should seek to have integrity, to have a good reputation, not only with our church family, but those with outside of our church. We should strive to be known as one who is reliable. Right? The basic things of, of turning up on time, whose yes is yes and whose no is no, who doesn't leave options open in the hopes of a, a better possibility, but one who takes the task before them and serves in it and trusts God's providence and timing. Those who directly answer direct questions. We should all be applying ourselves to growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, praying that we be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Let's be reading the Word and praying daily, so seeking to be those who apply God's Word to our daily lives. And let's be those, perhaps this is most difficult today, let's be those who are eager to live under the authority that God places in our lives. We have to be praying for and pressing into these traits that are laid out here.
But we need to be doing other things too. Honestly, we just need to be creating room for the allowance and possibility of service in our lives. Right? At, at, a, at a macro level, we need to be creating space and margin in our lives for serving Christ in His church. That means if you're an employee, you should not work so many hours that you cannot serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're a family, that means you need to structure your family life for service in the church. Don't let youth sports or music or academics or other activities so consume your family's schedule that there's no room for your physical family to serve the church family. Some of you may need to think about quitting some sports or reducing some music pursuits or scaling back on some academic endeavors. Our lives as Christian employees and families ought to look different from the world around us. We must have different priorities from the world around us, different schedules even from the world around us. We not only need to have time to serve God's people, but we also need to have time to rest. So, so don't think that you think, okay, I've heard this sermon on serving in God's church. I just need to, to add some more areas of service to my already busy life. That's just not going to work. You need to carve out space in your life for the opportunity of serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you need to carve out space to rest. You are human. You are finite. God is infinite. He's the one who doesn't need rest. But we need rest. And that's a good gift from Him. And so we should. We should carve out space for rest and for service all according to God's design. We're going to have to sacrifice some pursuits in this world for serving God and for giving God His worship. Well, we've considered the problem facing the church. Widows were being neglected. We've considered the apostles' proposal to the church. They're going to keep serving the congregation through proclaiming the word of God and through praying. And there's another aspect to this proposal, that seven men are appointed to serve the needs of the saints. So we now turn and consider our third and our final point, the prosperity of the church. Follow along now. As I read Acts chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, as we've seen here, uh, the church is facing different pressures so far in the book of Acts. And, And when that happens, God divinely intervenes. Right? So when Ananias and Sapphira threatened the church with hypocrisy, God divinely intervened and struck them down dead. When Peter and John were imprisoned, an angel of the Lord miraculously released them. So how is God divinely at work in the instance of this pressure? Well, the whole congregation agrees with what the apostle says. How often does everyone in a Baptist church agree? Right? And make no mistake, the church in Jerusalem was the first Baptist church in Jerusalem. Yes, the church rises to the occasion and God is clearly giving them A divine unity. Praise the Lord for that. They do pick out seven men as the apostles instruct. And what's interesting is that all seven, they have Greek names. So maybe this means that they were from the Hellenists in the congregation. We don't know for sure, but it seems possible. And that would be 
a striking show of deference and trust and compassion from the Hebrews in the congregation. It will be a beautiful picture of moving toward one another and not allowing a dispute to divide them. And concerning these men, some of whom we'll we'll meet in greater detail later in the book of Acts, uh, the first six of them are likely Hellenistic Jews, while the last one is is a Gentile convert from Antioch. That's what's meant by uh, this phrase, he's a proselyte. He's a Gentile convert from Antioch. And, And what we're seeing even here, even now, we're getting hints that Jesus' church is going to be made up of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. While in Jerusalem, the church is primarily made up of Jews, still by having a Gentile serve among its leadership, what's becoming clear is that one's ethnic background is not a determining factor for ministering among God's people. Stephen and Philip, as you see there, they lead the list. Stephen's about to preach a pretty, a pretty stout sermon. And Philip is going to, be, going to go on to become known as Philip the Evangelist. And what Luke is trying to communicate is that not only did the church answer the call of the apostles, but that these men, they will share in Jesus' ministry. Notice that the apostles' leadership and the church's humble submission in following the lead of the apostles, because that's what they've done in appointing these seven men. They followed the apostles' leadership. The church's humble humble submission in following the apostles' leadership, it's blessed of God. Look at verse 7. Just revel in this verse. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Brothers and sisters, do you see this? See how beautiful this is? The church freed up the word to go to work by freeing up preachers from good, right, and even necessary works of mercy. The the, The word was freed up to go to work. And when the church of the living God works together like this, often our God is pleased to bless such partnership. The church remains focused on its mission of witnessing to Jesus in word and in deed. And be sure to note that the word of God there, continuing to increase, it's held in parallel. It's basically synonymous with the number of disciples multiplying greatly. You might could translate verse 7 like this. The word of God continued to increase, which is to say the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. This is how disciples are made. And multiplied. The word of God is proclaimed. And another amazing reality you see there in verse 7 is that a great many priests became obedient to the faith. See, none are too far gone from Christ. Remember how, how many of the priests were opposing the apostles earlier in Acts. Well, here is a, a, a change taking place in a number of their hearts. The Lord seems to be converting them to Christ and to Christianity. And, and think about the priests and who they were in their daily lives. Right? They were servants at the temple. Day by day, they were standing and serving. And given the size of the church in Jerusalem, there is no doubt in my mind that they were watching the people of God serve up the Messiah in their proclamation and then imitate the Messiah in their service to their fellow brothers and sisters and any who had need among them. In other words, the priests, they were seeing a compelling community in the church. They heard a word about a suffering servant from the church's preachers. And they saw servants who imitated that suffering servant that they claimed to follow. Their words matched their deeds. And their deeds, no doubt, drove the priests to reconsider the words that were being uttered about Christ. The church in Jerusalem was setting forth a holistic ministry, a word and deed ministry about Christ, a proclamation of Christ and a portrayal of Christ. They proclaimed Jesus, 
And they portrayed Jesus. And friend, if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is one of the things we hope that you notice and see in our ministry. We want it to be a word and deed ministry. A ministry that proclaims Jesus and the goodness of God in him. And a, a ministry that portrays Jesus. We love and serve one another among us. And at the heart of this truth is that Jesus is a faithful servant. Friend, d- deep down in your bones, you know that God made you. He made you actually to be a servant. To be his servant. To love him and to honor him. To give him your worship. The whole course of your life. But you know, and I know, that we have all sinned and rebelled against God. Like Adam, instead of serving in the garden, Adam took, took what he was not permitted to take. He sinned, he rebelled against God's good commands. We've all done that. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, we're all in danger of facing God's just wrath against our sin. But the good news of the Bible is that God sent his son, the great servant, who lived the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. You see, every step, every every word of Jesus' life, every deed of Jesus' life was a humble act of service and obedience to God the Father. And at the end of his life, Jesus laid his life down on the cross, the greatest act of service the world has ever seen. He laid his life down on the cross, taking the, the sins, sins that we've committed, sins against God, the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in him. But his death was not his last act of service. His last act of service for his people, at least uh, there next to his death, was his resurrection. Three days after his death, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, vindicating him. And he proved to us in his resurrection from the dead that he offers forgiveness of sins for all those who would come to him, turn from their sins, and place their faith in him. Friend, Jesus invites you to do that now, to come to him, to receive his life of service on your behalf, And to be called into his service, proclaiming and portraying his life and ministry and salvation in word and in deed. Friend, if you want to know more about how the Lord Jesus has lived and loved and laid his life down for you, how he served for sinners like you and me, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about than the glorious service of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for you in that. Brothers and sisters, friends, as we conclude, I want us to encourage, I want to encourage us to cling to the priorities of prayer and preaching and service. To cling to the priorities of proclaiming Jesus and portraying Jesus at all times. And especially when the pressure is on. God loves to work through these means because they show His power and glory. Our God works through these means. This is how the Word of God increases. It's how disciples are made. And that is our heart's desire. We want to see Jesus made much of, believed on, and honored with faith. We love him because he first loved us. And we want others to come to know his love too. And to show and serve up his love to others. So, when problems and pressures arise, let us prioritize the word of God. Let us prioritize prayer. And let us prioritize loving service to one another. So that others may hear Jesus proclaimed and see Jesus portrayed. Would you pray with me now as we ask God to do this in our church family? Let's pray together.